No, I wouldn't. But anyway, hey, let's get started. Hey, the word, um, you ever notice how the word bless is just, uh, it's a really interesting word. Like when someone sneezes, what do people usually say around them? Why, why did they not do that when other bodily things happen? <laughs> you ever thought, like, if you were to, like, burp or cough or something else, like, why don't people, like, bless you? Like, oh, I wonder where that comes from. I did a little bit of research, and uh, back in, in the day, uh, a long time ago in the Roman culture, they would say things when someone would sneeze. They would say, Juniper, bless you, which was one of their gods back then, which means good health to you or long life. Uh, the phrase, God bless you, came from the 6th century. There was a guy by the name of Gregory the Great, which is like, why don't they do that anymore as well? Like call someone Gregory the Great, like it's Tyron the Great or something like that. But it was during the bubonic plague uh, and sneezing was basically a sign that you had it. May God bless you because you're going to die. Uh, <laughs> Gesundheit is uh, in, in German, which means health as well. Uh, but the word uh, bless or bless is not even reserved for just people who sneeze. It's more than that. Uh, when someone were to ask a, a Christian, usually, how are you today? Some people would say, you know what, I'm Some people would say that as well. Or the prayer uh, before you eat food, sometimes we call it what? The blessing, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Some people call it that. Uh, you, did you know that you can even use the word blessed as an insult? Like if you were to tell a story, you say, hey, I got this family member. We'll just call him Clem. Clem the other day got this email from the king of Nigeria. And, and the king of Nigeria said he's going to send him $25 million. But the first thing he got to do is he has to send them $10,000 to get that money cleaned up. And you'd be like, oh, bless him. <laughs> you know what we're basically saying, right? <laughs> Clem's an idiot. <laughs> or like if someone were new to Las Vegas and like, man, Las Vegas people, they really know how to drive around here. We'd be like, oh, bless you. What are we saying? <laughs> What do we say? We're saying, oh, you're an idiot. Like, you, you have no idea how bad the driving is. And it's because of California drivers, am I right? <laughs> Anywho, blessing is a really interesting word. I think uh, with so many usages, it would be important for us to get to understand it. Well, today we're beginning our brand new series during the Lenten season. Uh, we're going to be going through the Beatitudes of Jesus. I love this season uh, for about 40-ish days, over six Sundays. We'll be joining Christians from all over the world, uh, observing Lent. Uh, Lent is leading us up to something. It's leading us up to Easter. But what must happen first uh, before Easter comes, before the resurrection of Jesus? Death. And so for 40-ish days, we're going to be looking, we're going to look at what it really means to to die in order to live. And so we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus, which just means blessed are. And so the question is, how do we get blessed or blessed are and death into the same scope? Like, how does that work together? Well, I'm glad you would ask that. We're going to be looking at exactly uh, how it goes together through what Jesus says here in the Beatitudes. Now, uh, for some of you, uh, you probably are familiar with some cultural Beatitudes. I read a few of these this week. I thought they were pretty good. One person said this, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. <laughs> blessed are the young, for they shall inherit the national debt. <laughs> Herbert Hoover right there. Uh, some of you love this one or hate it. Blessed are the, the geeks and nerds, for they shall inherit Middle Earth and Hogwarts. <laughs> blessed are those who imitate us, for they shall inherit our faults. You know what we call those people, right? Our children. Uh, blessed is the man who, having nothing to say, abstains from giving us wordy evidence of the fact. <laughs> and I thought that's funny. And blessed is, you didn't, but blessed is he who learned to laugh at himself, for he shall never cease to be entertained. There you go. 
And so there's some cultural beatitudes, but who cares about that? Let's go right to what Jesus is saying. So if you've got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5. Actually, we'll back up into Matthew chapter 4 a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need a Bible here at Grace Point Church. And if you've been with us for a little while, typically when I preach, I put the whole sermon. Uh, I don't do it. They do it back there. But they put the whole uh, scripture up on the screen. We said during the season of Lent, uh, we're not going to do that. Why? We really want you to have a Bible in your hand. And so if you don't have a Bible, we have them free in English and Spanish at these, center, these tables here at Centerpoint as well. We have a table out there where you can thumb through a lot of different varieties of the Bible, one that would fit your need best. You can go out and look at those and we can order you up a Bible. You'll have to pay for it though. And then, uh, and also on version, there's a Bible app on there as well on your phone, version. Download that because I really want us to, really want us to be people of the word. So make sure you got your Bible with you. If you don't have one, we can get you one. Uh, a little bit of backstory before we get into this. I don't want it to feel like a Quentin Tarantino movie where we just jump into it like what's going on. And so let me give you the backstory. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. Yet a couple of thousand years ago, he comes as a baby in the manger. That's the season of Advent, or as we know as well as Christmas. And so he comes and he lives and he grows up and he gets baptized by John. That's a big fast forward in his life right there. Immediately, he is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days, which kind of historically lines up a little bit with the, the, the reasoning behind the season of Lent a bit. Uh, but anyway, he's tempted by Satan. He's led by the Spirit there. And how much, uh, how much does Jesus follow that temptation? Come on now, that's easy. Zero. Maybe the way I worded that. Did Jesus sin? No, none whatsoever. Uh, which, when you read that story, kind of gives you some clues at how he faced temptation. He faced it with God's Word. And so if we want uh, victory over temptation, then it comes through God's Word. But nonetheless, uh, he's led into temptation. He does not, uh, does not follow that whatsoever. And then it kind of seems like in the Gospels, especially Matthew, he begins his earthly ministry. And so you fast forward a little bit to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. That's where we'll start. And this is what happens. Oh, I like that noise. Bible pages turning. From that time, Jesus began to preach. So he's proclaiming, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus begins his preaching ministry. And so one of the first things he talks about is the kingdom of heaven. But there's this key word he talks about. This is how he's going to start off his ministry. And his ministry starts off with the word what? Repent. Now, some of us hear the word repent. Like, oh, man, that sounds horrible. You think about people holding up signs down on the strip that says basically repent or turn or burn or something like that. And like, oh, it's got really bad connotations. But if you remember from Ash Wednesday, if you were here, repent means to turn away, to turn away from your way and turn away to God. And in that is where we find life. Actually, uh, Proverbs 3 talks about it being refreshment for our bones. It's healing to us when we repent. Why? Because when we are living in our ways, in our wants, in our desires, where we become our own gods, that leads us to what? Death and not a good death. But when we go into God's way, it leads us into life, and that's where human beings flourish. And so Jesus says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. He's like, turn to God and find life. And as we do that, we find this thing called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is not just heaven, although it is, but it's not some lofty idea of a place where we go when we die. It's more than that. Jesus talks about living in the kingdom here and now. What does that mean for us? If we repent, we're living in the kingdom here and now. That means the kingdom has a king, and the king's name is? And so we live under his rule and his reign and his care and all that right now and for all eternity. And so that's what he's talking about. Got it? 
So he's going about, and he's talking about this kingdom of heaven, and, and it's, it's, it's grabbing some traction. People are kind of starting to follow him. And so he goes out, and he's, he's pretty selective. He goes and, and grabs disciples. Now, you would think Jesus would go get, like, the cream of the crop, the greatest rabbis ever or whatever, but he doesn't, does he? Which is really good news for us, isn't it? He goes and gets a bunch of stinky fishermen. Now, if you're a fisherman, like, no offense on that whatsoever, but you probably smell like fish, and that smells, okay? You know what I'm saying? And so uh, we don't try to clean that up or church it up dirt. These are like deadliest catch people. Like they would be a bunch of roughnecks. And I want you to see this in Matthew 4, 18. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. Immediately, that means right then, they left their nets and followed him. So it cost to follow Jesus. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brothers, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father to follow him. Not only did they leave their business, they left their father as well. And he went up throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And now watch. So his fame spread. So word got around. This Jesus, he's healing people, and he's teaching and doing all these things. His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus has these new followers. We call those disciples. Those are the learners, the students, the pupils of Jesus. But then while this was going on, other people started watching as well. It's like Jesus was this snowball, and it was picking up a lot of traction as it was going. And so Jesus calls his disciples to him, but people kept following as well, and they were going to listen in on this new thing that Jesus was doing. And so I'm, I'm sure Jesus, being the master teacher that he was, he wanted to make sure people understood what this kingdom of heaven is like. And so that gets us into Matthew chapter 5, which is traditionally known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins it with the Beatitudes. Now, Matthew 5, 1, he says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus goes up to a mountain. I think, personally, this is a nod to who? Of the Old Testament. Moses, I think so. Maybe it is, maybe not. Because remember, Moses went up to the mountain. Moses got the words of God. And I think this is a little bit of nod to Moses to where this is God here on the mountain. He's going to be speaking his word, which would be the word of God. Maybe it isn't. Maybe not. Maybe Jesus just went up there because it's better acoustics. I don't know. Uh, but it's the, you, have, you have to picture the scene that his disciples, the ones he's called, are around him. And yet there are scores. We don't know how many, but lots and lots of people around listening in as well. And it feels like Jesus is just going to be teaching his disciples, but the other people will be listening as well. Very strategic there. So what happens? Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, obviously, right? If you're going to teach someone, what do you have to do? You got to open your mouth. Why? I don't know why Matthew did that. Matthew in his gospel is a very detailed person. Perhaps he's signifying or signaling to us that what's getting ready to come out of the mouth of Jesus is, is authoritative, that we should listen to it, we should heed it, and we should obey it. So he's trying to kind of give us a clue there that we need to pick up on, maybe, maybe not. And he says this in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This one verse is the key to everything. It is the key to life now. It is the key to eternal life. 
this verse, in my opinion, is the do not pass go, do not collect $200 verse. So it would do us well to understand it as best as possible and allow it to have its effect on us. So I'm going to kind of walk through and we're going to pick it apart. So the first word that we need to look at is the word blessed. What does the word blessed mean? Well, if you kind of do a little bit of research on it, some people will say, and some good scholars will say, the word blessed means happy. And so he's saying right there, happy if you, you are happy if you are poor in spirit. Now, some of us, we hear that and we're like, ha, there it is. God just wants me happy. But I would say, hold your horses right there. I think God has something better for us than happiness. Happiness is a bit subjective, isn't it? Some people's happiness might not be your happiness. Am I right? And so it's a bit subjective and it's a bit circumstantial, isn't it, as well? Like things must happen to you in order to be happy. Like if you want to make me happy, I don't know, like buy me dinner or give me some money or like spend some time with me or watch the basketball game with me and cheer for my team and not your team, something like that. (laughs) But for other people, that might not bring them happiness. So I think it's a bigger word would fit there. What does it mean? Well, when we look at our Bibles, we see the word blessed used in a lot of different ways. In our Old Testament, we see this idea that it informs us that humans can bless God and God can bless people. So this gives us a little bit of clue on what the word blessed actually means. Blessed does not mean instant happiness. Blessed means this. It means the approval of someone. Got it? So when we read this, it's going to be, I think it's going to be an important key to figuring out the Beatitudes a little bit. See, in the Bible, it says that we can bless God. We see that through the Psalms quite a bit. It says, bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. And what does that mean from us? When we bless God, we are saying we approve of you, God, not in some condescending way like we're above God and God is beneath us, but it's an actuation or, an, or it's a reality of us blessing God or us approving of God or us praising God. Makes sense? So I don't want us to think that we're inferior and God is, uh, or we are superior, God is inferior. It doesn't mean that. But in the Bible, when God blesses us, we are asking him for his blessing. And when we ask God for his blessing, we're asking for what? His approval. Think of it like this. God, would you approve of this? God, would you give me your blessings on X, Y, Z? What do we want? It's not that we want happiness in it. We want his approval in it. Now, listen. There is no higher approval in all the universe than having the approval of Almighty God. And when we have the approval of Almighty God, what emotion do you think that brings to us little humans? Come on, the ball's on the team. Just swing. Swing. That's how you got to swing. Happiness. Does that make sense? I think that's the key to this. So that's the key to understanding the Beatitudes. And by the way, the Beatitudes, for, for many people, they see them as commands. The Beatitudes are not commands. They are to be comforts to us. They are not a list of do's and don'ts. They are a list of comforts and showing us God's approval. And what Jesus is doing, remember all the backstory I said, he is saying this is what it looks like to live within the kingdom life. They are approvals of who we are in him. This is the life that God approves us. And if we are in Christ, this is what we embody in our lives, sort of, isn't it? Because positionally, if you're in Christ, we have the approval of God. Practically, we want to live that out or we want to live from that and and to actually live that out. And so the question is, how are you doing with that? How are you doing living out the approval of God? Or may I ask it this way? Whose approval in this world or in this life do you desire more than anyone else's? Don't answer too quickly. Because I know in this setting, in this room, you're going like, God's. Okay, is that true in your life? When you were to take a look at the landscape of your life, whose approval do you want most? 
It may be a spouse. It may be a friend. It may be a coworker. It may be a neighbor. It may be children. It may be grandchildren. It may be a, a peer. It may be all sorts of people. But when we find ultimate approval, when we find our ultimate approval in and from Christ, oh, these beatitudes will speak to us in ways like we never have before. Life will begin to, to make sense. And just as a reminder, if you're in Christ, we're not working for God's approval. We're working from God's approval. Big difference. Please get that. Because if you're working for God's approval, you'll never be good enough. You'll never do enough. You'll never be pure enough. You'll never be holy enough. You'll never be religious enough. You won't. But if we're working from his approval, it opens up all of life. Now, let's keep back into it. So that's blessed. So blessed is kind of the idea of approval, okay? Make sense? No? Okay. Let's keep going. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at the poor in spirit. Jesus is telling us who are approved, that's who are blessed, to be the poor of spirits. Of all of the Beatitudes, this is the one I think Jesus is not embodied. If you look at the rest of the Beatitudes, Jesus embodies it completely. But Jesus is not poor in spirit to the, to the thought of he needs salvation. Because Jesus does not need salvation because he is the giver of salvation. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But think about the first one he starts out with is poor in spirit. This is, these are the people that are approved by God. Think about how weird that is for us to hear that. That's not how we view people in our life, are we? When we think about what are the things that we approve of as people and what are the qualities that we approve of in people around us in this culture, what would be some words that would hit that list? Well, we'd think of things like strong or creative or self-starter or motivator or someone that takes charges or someone who doesn't quit. Like those are great things, but Jesus starts with poor in spirit. What does he mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Can I, can I tell you what poor in spirit doesn't mean? Poor in spirit doesn't mean self-hatred or self-loathing. I've seen many people think that poor in spirit is like, if I hate myself bad enough, if I loathe myself bad enough, then and only then will I be poor in spirit. No, no, no. If you hate yourself, if you loathe yourself, you probably have a misunderstanding of the value, the intrinsic value that God has placed in you by being created in his image and that he loves you. And he doesn't want us to hate ourselves, hate our sin for sure, but not hate ourselves. So self-loathing and all, that's not what it means to be poor in spirit. I'll give you another one. False humility. False humility is not, that's not what it means to be poor in spirit. You ever been around someone who has false humility? Like they talk about all the things they do, but then no one knows about it. Or they talk about their whole, like their resume. It almost feels like they pride themselves in their humility. It makes no sense at all. I do all of this, but I don't take any credit for it. If you don't know anyone uh, who is, uh, has false humility, maybe you, I don't know. But another one, rigidity. Sometimes we think poor in spirit means rigidity. You enforce such a rigid lifestyle that it's almost at the point of being painful for no reason at all. Almost like these extreme vows of a minimalistic life. All for this idea of like, you know what? If I don't partake of anything, if I don't do anything whatsoever, if I make my life so awful and so horrible, then and only then will I be poor in spirit and God will love me. I don't think that's it as well. It's not personality as well. Some may say, well, poor in spirit means you have to be a shy person or introverted. So for all of us extroverts, we're out. There's no way we can be poor in spirit. I don't think that is it as well. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, when you look at the Old Testament, you see this word or phrasing quite often. And it typically does not mean, any, it doesn't have anything to do with money. It usually means lowly. It usually means humble. It's this idea that you are spiritually 
bankrupt. It's this idea that without God, you have nothing and can do nothing. It's this idea that says, I can't do it. You know how bad I hate that, that phrase? The idea to tell someone, I can't do it on my own. I hate it. Most of you all here hate it as well. You know how I know that? Because you're Americans, not Americans. And so just the idea of saying, I can't do anything, you don't like it. But what Jesus is telling us is this. This is the starting point. The starting point of our life in Christ is I can't do it. I can't do enough to get God to approve of me. I can't be good enough, smart enough, savvy enough, religion, religious enough, good enough. I can't do any of it. I cannot save myself. This is the starting point. This is where Jesus wants us to begin. The poor in spirit are those who know that they are sinners and do not have the spiritual resources, the gumption, the gusto, or anything to carry out God's demands. That is the beginning. See, Jesus' description of life in the kingdom is not about trying harder to gaining power and control and then mastering their spiritual life. No, no, no. It begins with powerlessness. It begins with surrender. One of my favorite, um, I guess, parables or stories that Jesus tells is in Luke 18. Luke 18, we're going to go there next. It's one of my favorite stories. And it's one of those stories, every time we read it, it gets us. You ever just read a story and Jesus always just nails us on it? This is one of those stories without fail. It gets every one of us. Watch, and I'll show you how. He tells this story. He says, in verse 9, Luke 18. I'll wait. <laughs> I forgot. This is so much fun. <laughs> oh, man. So Jesus is telling the story. He said this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So that would be self-righteousness. That they were righteous and treated other people with contempt. You can kind of see it sitting right there. They're thinking they are good. And other people are not as good as them. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the Pharisee would be looked upon as like, hey, he's the religious person. They've got it going. Everything's in order in their life. They're good people. They're close to God. And the tax collector were the most hated people of the time because they were usually Jewish people who were collecting taxes, more taxes than they should, from their own people, and they were viewed as traitors. You've got the situation of the two people, and here's what happens. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, like pointing the guy out in his prayer. That's in a passive aggressive. That's an aggressively passive prayer right there. And then he gives his resume. I fast twice a week. I give tithes at all I get. And so he's pointed out that he's not like other people. He's pointed out all these good things he does. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's poor in spirit. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified, meaning right with God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, lifts himself up, will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, be honest. Every one of us read that. And we're like, whoo, man, I'm glad I'm not like a Pharisee. It's the same thing. Same thing the Pharisee did. We're just sitting there saying, I'm glad I'm not religiously rigid like that. And it's the same, we want to prop ourselves up that we're better than someone else. And Jesus is trying to annihilate that from our minds. See, we must realize that the first link between my soul and the, and the soul of Christ is not my goodness, but actually my badness. Not my merit, but actually my misery. And not my standing, but actually my failing. 
See, we do not like the word poor. We don't see poor as a good thing, nor noble thing. We see poor as bad. We tend, if not careful, to look at people who are poor and say, we know they're lazy or they didn't take their opportunities or they are slack or they don't work as hard as me. They should get up and just do something. Poor is something we avoid at all costs. But Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, begins his Beatitudes with, we must be poor in spirit. We read this. And we struggle. I don't want to be poor. Jesus says, be poor. You must be needy. I remember watching my kids learn how to tie their shoes and you know, their little fat sausage fingers when they're little and they're trying to really work at it. And like, you're sitting back there as a parent, like, I, I, let me just say, it. I'm sitting back there as an impatient parent, like, kids, we got to go. And so like, come on. And it's so like, you know, I want to do it for them. They're like, no, daddy, I can do it. And they do it. And you're, you feel so proud of them, like, yeah, you did it on your own. And, like, that's a good thing. It's actually not a bad thing. But the kingdom's a little bit upside down on these situations to where it's not like that when it comes before our relationship with God. He does everything. We do nothing. We just fumble with the, the, the laces at all times. He is the one that must do it. <laughs> this reminds us that we have to cry uncle when it comes to God because we are the weak ones. We can't do anything without him. People will argue outside and say, you know what, Christianity is for weak people. And the next person, next time someone tells you Christianity is for weak people, you know what you should respond? Yes, it is. I'm weak. Come and join me. Christianity is just a crutch. Oh, it's more than a crutch. It's the whole wheelchair. It's everything. I got nothing on my own. It is the coma bed. It's the life support. It is everything that I have. That's the place we must be. It's nothing. That's where we all probably struggle the most, needing Jesus. Maybe there's a season in your life, you've been following Jesus for a while, and there's a weak season in your life, and you felt like that was the closest you've ever been to God. I feel like everything was just clicking, and you were relating with him and everything, but then something happened. You lost that mojo with God, if you will. You're, that closeness is no longer there, and you, you stopped growing. What happened? I'll tell you exactly what happens to us when that happens. We become strong. See, that's the problem with Christianity sometimes. We... We, we mess it up where we become the strong ones in there. So what does that look like? Here's what it looks like if you're strong in yourself right now. Let me, let me give you some symptoms of a person who is too strong for their own good right now. One, you lack prayer. You know why? There's no more dependence upon God. Why do I need to pray about these situations? I just get out there and get stuff done. You know what? I've said that to myself before. You haven't? Darn it. It was just me. The second one, a lack of reading God's word. Why would I hunger and thirst for life in there when I can find life in and of myself right now where I'm at? A lack of worship to where I don't want to use my voice. I don't want to use any of that to, to sing and to worship God. Because it's like, why would I sing his praises when I'm not doing that, ba that bad myself? I'm, I'm pretty good. A, a lack of repentance. A lack of repentance is a great sign that shows you become strong. Why? Because that sin's not that big of a deal anymore, or I've got it kind of handled, or God, he's just really not that worried about it, and it just shows that you become strong. Or a lack of community to where there's no accountability. I don't need anyone in my life. I've got this all on my own. What happens there? We have become strong. What should we do? Turn back to Jesus. That's called repentance. Become weak again. Tell him of your great need because you have become strong in yourself, which is absolutely worth nothing. Jesus reminds us to be weak, to go back to the beginning. We must be poor in spirit. And the more, we're, the, the more we become poor in spirit, the more we are put together with other people who are poor in spirit as well. It's like you kind of you give that nod of like, yeah, me too. Mark Twain said this. I think it's funny. He commented that God must like poor people because there sure are a lot of them. <laughs> it's like, it's true. 
perhaps today you're here and you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm hearing all this and I'm not a follower of Jesus. And I thought to be a follower of Jesus, you had to like do a whole lot. I thought about being a Christian, like you had to like get yourself right. And you believe that, you know, God only helps those that help themselves. Can I tell you how wrong that is? God only helps people who realize they can't help themselves. Some of you may say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian or whatever. I just feel like there's some things in my life I've got to get right. I've got to stop doing this, whatever this is, and I've got to start doing this. And then and only then, maybe I'll trust God and he'll, he'll accept me. It doesn't work that way. You come right where you are at. You don't go get yourself cleaned up. You don't do that first. You come straight to where he's at. Jesus loves you right where you are, but he loves you enough to not leave you there. Come know Jesus today. He is for the weak poor in spirit, those who cannot help or save themselves. Let me give you the last part of that verse. It says in verse three, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that, um, just some, some notice, uh, in, in Matthew's gospel, he says a lot of times the kingdom of heaven, but you see other writings, the kingdom of God. Is there a difference? Uh, perhaps Matthew was a bit of a purist and he didn't like to say or write God's name too often because it was so pure and holy and all that. And it would be kind of an Old Testament thing. Uh, But just know this, there's really no distinction when you hear from the Bible, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. It's all about the same. Um, And and then one more notice. Notice that in verse 3, he says kingdom of heaven. And then look look at your Bible right now. Go all the way through the Beatitudes. Notice on the last half of every Beatitude, there's something different. But look at verse 10 again, the last one. What does it say? Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is what? It's like he encaps it of like the kingdom of heaven. And notice he talks about the persecuted. So he talked about the poor in spirit and the persecuted. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, congratulations, you're broken. The kingdom is for you. I just, I just love that idea. He's like, I approve of broken people. You know why? That's all he's got to work with. Some of us sit in our brokenness so often, we think we're so unique because we're broken. Listen, all of humanity is broken. And only Jesus is the one that can repair this humanity. And then he gives us this, this, this thing called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is now and not yet, meaning we are a part of this kingdom. The Bible talks about like this present reality that we are whole and that we are seated with him, that we are this royal priesthood, that we are loved and all that. We've, we don't feel that completely right now, and yet part of it is there, but it will be a reality either when Christ returns or we return to him. The, king, the kingdom is ours because of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is step one to come to Jesus. Being poor in spirit is step one to returning to Jesus. Being poor in spirit is step one to continuing in Jesus. Are you getting a theme here? Being poor in spirit. So in light of the Lenten season, which is leading us into repentance, which leads us into the heart of the gospel, here's what I think we, we should do to end our time today. What if we were to repent, really repent, of our self-righteousness? We are all like that Pharisee there, aren't we? We are. We are all like the Pharisee in that story that we want to prop ourselves up in all that we do, that we're better than other people. And because we're better than other people, because we have our own righteousness, God looks at us in favor and blesses us, but not others. I think that'd be a good spot for us today to begin in repentance. In my community group, we're going through this study called The Gospel-Centered Life, and it's just a phenomenal study. And a couple weeks ago, as we were walking through it, 
it had all these lists of these righteousness. And so I grabbed a hold of a few of those, and then I uh, added a couple more. But I want to walk through these lists of righteousness. Maybe this is where you're finding your righteousness. And that's a place that we need to be humble and humbled, and a place we need to repent of, like, that, that righteousness doesn't hold any weight with God. I want the righteousness of Christ. Let me, let me give you a few of them. First one is this, job righteousness. You would say, I find my righteousness in my hard work. I can outwork everyone around me. And because I'm a hard worker, God sees it and God only rewards hard workers. Family righteousness. I do things right as a parent. I'm more godly than those other parents who can't control their heathen kids. You don't say it like that. But listen, y'all been all, all of you all have been to Walmart on a Sunday. You've seen it. You heard it. Maybe you were there with it. I don't know. But boy, oh boy. Theological rightness, righteousness. I have good theology. Everybody else, else's theology is whack. And so like my theology is way better because I study these people in this tribe. And because they're the, the right people in this right tribe of theology world, theological world, then I am right and everyone else is superior. Or we'll say it like this. I'm on varsity team. Everyone else is on JV team. Intellectual righteousness. I am better read, more articulate, more culturally savvy than others, which makes me obviously superior. Basically saying I'm cooler than everyone else around me because I'm in the node everyone else around me, and everyone else around me is rubes, and God really appreciates how I stay in tune with everything. Intellectual righteousness. Schedule righteousness. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management. I block out every second, every minute, every hour. I do not waste any time whatsoever, and God cannot stand those time wasters out there, and especially those people who show up late. And so he sees me showing up on time, and so therefore I am righteous. You laugh at this, but this is some people. Not us, of course, am I right? Flexibility righteousness. In a world that is busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on people who do not make time for others. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged. I'm always thinking about how to be merciful and kind to people around me where everyone else is just missing them and walking by them. I'm the one who stops. Uh, the, I am the good Samaritan, but everyone else is just a Pharisee that walks on by. And so for that reason, God loves me more. Legalistic righteousness. This author wrote this, and I thought it was funny. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. <laughs> Too many Christians are, just aren't concerned about holiness these days. And so you're a holiness person. Like, I'm all about some holiness. I care about being holy, which is a great thing. Ah, but shame on those people who don't because God looks at my holiness. He's like, that, that guy, that gal, they're on the path. Financial righteousness. I manage money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those other materialistic Christians that are always just buy, buy, buying and spending money and in debt and all that. And I give so much money to the church. You, you don't know how much I give. And I know God sees it and he loves me more than those who give nothing. Here's a fun one. Political Righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote, on my, you'll vote for my candidate. I could go into news righteousness if you watch Fox News, if you watch CNN News, if you watch no news whatsoever. But political righteousness, well, that's been a big one. Big one. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. I can tolerate anything and everything. I never stand for anything. Kind of got to, you know, just, just kind of go with the flow attitude. And everyone else should have that attitude as well. Education righteousness. I am way more educated than you, and so therefore I must be smarter than you, and therefore God must be happy because I'm a smart person. Or that goes another way. I'm a better educator than you because I love my children more, and I homeschool, private school, or what's the other one? Public school. 
And so we'll, we'll find our righteousness in how we educate our kids. Am I right? Food righteousness. No? Oh, I eat this way, and because I eat this way, I watched all the documentaries. As a matter of fact, I got a PhD in documentaries right now, and I found out <laughs> that in order to take care of your body and take care of the planet, I eat this way, and because I do this is me, because I eat this way and I want to take care of the planet, no one else cares about the planet like me, God, so you should have favor upon me, God. Uh, physical righteousness. I take better care of my body, and no one else takes care of their care better care of their body and the body is a temple. And so I must be loved and cared for and approved more by God because I'm, t I mean, can, can we just go on and on and on? Can we do vaccine righteousness? I got the vaccine. I don't have the vaccine. I don't care. Like whatever that is. Do, do you see the theme here? We can be rich in our own self-righteousness and not be poor in the spirit. We can find our righteousness in anything outside of Christ. We've got to be mindful of this. It becomes idolatry. It becomes like almost like self-worship or worship of the things that we're finding our righteousness in and what Jesus is calling us to. He's like, the kingdom of heaven is for those who are poor in spirit, those who don't have enough righteousness. And so perhaps one of these today, you can put those back up on if you want. Maybe one of these today or just you kind of know like, hey, that's where I'm finding my righteousness. Perhaps today would be a great day to right where we sit and we'll reflect, confess and repent and ask the Lord to turn you from that where you can find life in his, in his righteousness. Here's what I want to do. I, I want to I, I give us a little space to do that. Usually on Sunday, it's like boom, 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 in and out. Uh, but I, I want to slow it down a little bit, a little slow jam here. And I, I want to give us some space to sit in silence and say, Lord, where am I finding my righteousness outside of you? And when he shows you that, when he reveals that to you, he probably already has, confess of it, repent of it. That's what, our, that's what the season is for, is the extra uh, I guess, examination of self so we may repent of our sins. So let's, let's create a little space. We'll have some silence, and you guys can pray that, and then I'll bring us out of it in just a moment, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let me start us. Father, right now we open ourselves to you. Jesus, you said that the poor in spirit, those who are needy, understand their great need for you, that apart from you we have nothing, nor can we do anything. And so, Holy Spirit, would you would you illuminate, would you show us where we're finding our righteousness in instead of you? Would you, would you guide us to confession and to repent, to turn away from that? And may we bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as Jesus says well. So Holy Spirit, do your work in your people now.
Lord, thank you for the gift of silence. May it just be a refreshing drink that we drink down. Many times you meet us in the silence. God, each, each and every one of us try to find our righteousness at times in anything and anyone but you. And so God, would you forgive us restore us. We turn and trust you. The word says that you will humble those who exalt themselves. So God, we, we ask for your kindness in this. We ask for your grace and your mercy. Be gentle with us, please. Humble us before you. May, may we lose everything that we grab a hold of to give us some self-righteousness. May it lose its grasp on us as well. May we be found with only the righteousness of Christ. And in that, God, would you give us life? Would you give us hope? Would you give us peace? God, would you give us just an unspeakable joy? to be free from the enslavement of self-righteousness. Please. God, we're always asking you to do this work, but this next 40 days, God, would, would you really just bring out the excavator of the gospel and dig deep into us? Would you mine out all the caverns that hold idols, self-righteousness, bitterness, sin, would you unearth it? Would you remove it? Would you bring us healing? And would you bring us refreshment as your people? May it be for our good. May it be for the good of the world around us. And Jesus, may it be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.